the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, today, Nancy Pelosi met with her College of Cardinals, and I'm using a Catholic metaphor because, as I understand from her, Nancy Pelosi is a good Catholic. And uh, the decision was that uh, they will vote tomorrow, Wednesday, on a resolution appointing impeachment managers and then sending the articles of impeachment over to the Senate so we can move this process along after the past three weeks of stasis. Uh, Nancy Pelosi said something, too. I just I, We played it on yesterday's show, but I want to reiterate it. I thought this was important, the point that she emphasized during her appearance with Clinton Foundation donor zero, Stephanopoulos, on Sunday. We had, we have confidence in our case that it is impeachable and this president is impeached for life, regardless of any gamesmanship on the part of uh, Mitch McConnell. Now, any gamesmanship on the part of Nancy Pelosi, it's the scarlet eye that's important, that uh, stain on the permanent Trump record that Nancy Pelosi seems content to, to, to comfort herself with and declare victory and move the process along. At least that's my read on it. For another read, pleased to be joined by Andrew Claven, famed Hollywood screenwriter, also podcaster. His podcast, Another Kingdom, is in season three. He was the screenwriter for a number. Uh, he was the author of book turned into movies, including True Crime, that uh, Eastwood made a movie. Eastwood made that movie. And he's also the screenwriter for the more recent movie, Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Dan. Thanks. So what about this? Uh, I'm sure you've watched with bated breath uh, over the last uh, several months as this pr- has proceeded to this point. Uh, your your assessment of uh, how well Nancy Pelosi, minted master strategist, according to the D.C. press corps, has handled this. Well, I mean, she's, it's really, in a way, it's not her fault. I mean, she did not want to go down this road. She knew it was going to uh, come a cropper with voters. She's looking to win. You know, she's an old pal. You know, she knows exactly what she's doing. She wanted to win, but she was just forced into it, I think, by the left wing uh, of her party, of her caucus, which was on the rise, the AOC squad, you know, that was getting all that press. I think she just, in order not to become irrelevant, she had to pick up this ball and it has been as big a disaster as she thought it would be. She's been humiliated by Mitch McConnell as she tried to outsmart him uh, in the Senate, and she's been she's lost uh, votes. The people are, saw this impeachment process as, as the unfair McCarthyite tactic that it was, and they've sort of turned against it. So the one thing she has is that clip you played. I think you're exactly right. This is what she comes away with, is she's hoping that this will somehow stain the Trump presidency. I mean, so far, the Trump presidency, no matter what you think of the guy personally, he has been very good at being president. And it's been an excellent presidency. The economy's doing great. He hasn't started any new wars. This latest thing in Iran has been a complete triumph so far. They got nothing on him except this. So what she says, when she says he's impeached, she said he's impeached for life, and later she said he's impeached forever. The idea there is, look, not that many presidents have been impeached. Uh, Clinton was, Johnson was, and Nixon resigned before he could be. 
But the thing is, it's happening faster and faster, because once the Democrats saw how damaging it was to the Nixon legacy, basically the politicians thought, oh, this is a weapon that we can use at will. I, I thought they went too far when they impeached Clinton, even though he had broken the law. And I think this is just a bizarre and absurd idea that the people are going to stop in their tracks and say, oh, he made a comment to the president of Ukraine, let's get rid of him. That's not going to happen. So she knows she went down the wrong road, and all she can come away with a sort of booby prize that she's going to come away with <laughs> is she can put this on the record books that he was impeached. Yeah, and ironically, uh, I think as Trump suggested in his sit-down with Laura Ingram, you know, all they've really done is devalue the word, word impeachment. So, you know, the, I mean, this group, which has become sort of the boy who cried wolf over the last three years of he colluded with the Russians. No, he bribed and extorted the Ukrainian. No, he and McConnell are engaged in a cover up. Uh, uh, he was impeached that the, the next you know, that the next time either party tries to make this play, if and when there is a next time. Uh, boy, they're going to have to have it all buttoned up after this experience, which is probably a good thing for the republic. You know, it, it is funny. When Trump first took office, you know, he has that way of talking, that kind of overblown carnival barker way of talking. Everything is either the worst or the best, and the people, he calls people names and all this. The problem is the Democrats went so insane that his rhetoric is now just describing reality. <laughs> when, he, <laughs> when he talks about the Democrats and how bad they are, they really are that bad. And so they've kind of legitimized uh, Trump in a way that could have made him look bad by maintaining their decorum and being serious and trying to take care of the people's business. Instead, with this resistance nonsense, they've made fools of themselves. And now Trump is just describing reality as he is. He's not being overblown in his rhetoric at all. And uh, we find ourselves against this backdrop. You have the Democrat candidates who are just a couple of weeks away from their first test in Iowa. They've really, for actually some time now, tried to stay mainly away from the impeachment issue. Andrew Yang, perhaps most aggressively and antagonistic towards focusing all our attention on impeachment. But what they're left with right now as we're going into that first contest is a couple of septuagenarian socialists and a couple billionaires. And uh, I'm not so sure that's the order of the day. This may be the one benefit the Democrats got out of impeachment is that it has taken news coverage completely away from the Democrat candidates who are indeed a bunch of losers. I mean, Project Veritas released a shocking video today of one of Bernie Sanders' field workers saying that the reason he wants to offer free education is because Trump voters need to be re-educated just like the Nazis were re-educated. Educated after World War II, and that's why Stalin had gulags, was to uh, re-educate these evil people, and the gulags really weren't so bad. And that would be just one guy talking, if it didn't reflect some of Sanders' thoughts, this guy who is now leading in Iowa, according to some polls, he actually is a guy who has defended the Soviet Union, defended the Nicaraguan communists, and defended Castro. He is the guy that he appears to be, and they are on the Brink, they are in danger, let's say, of nominating a stone communist to run against Trump, which I think would just make Trump's day. I mean, yeah, so the bad news is the gulags, but let's look at the upside, too. You've got those, <laughs> you've got, you know, you're always focused on the downside. What about the affordable puppet shows and the pretty chandeliers? <laughs> it's true. Well, Sanders was a guy who actually said that bread lines are a good thing because it means everybody's getting bread. So if you, if you love those bread lines, you know who to vote for. Yeah, you, you wonder why um, Obama world is in full panic uh, with sort of uh, Elizabeth Warren receding, Bernie ascending, and now they're left to do something sort of ironically they may not want to do, which is rally around Joe Biden. 
you know, the one thing, if there's one thing that Barack Obama knew is if you want to sell leftism to the American people, you have to lie about it. We don't want it. We hate it. But if you want to sell it, you got to p- pretend to be a moderate. And everybody forgets that Barack Obama the first time ran as a moderate. He governed as a leftist, but he ran as a moderate. And that's why you have these weird polls that show people really liked Barack Obama, but at the same time, they voted every single Democrat but him out of office while he was mm-hmm, president. Mm-hmm. So they liked the, per- the man personally, but they didn't like his policies, and now they're running on his policies without his charm. Now, I, I, it is Oscar season, so I've, I've got to ask you, uh, give you a chance to uh, uh, weigh in on Ricky Gervais's uh, destruction of Hollywood right to their faces at the Golden Globes, and uh, just sort of the state of where Hollywood is, because... Uh, um, you know, I, I, they're sort of cracking up over Trump uh, the same way the Democrats are. You know, they are. Ricky Gervais, that was a masterpiece of absolutely, absolutely eviscerating satire. And what made it so brilliant was not so much the, you know, teasing. It was bringing out the fact of how hypocritical they are, that the people that they work for. I mean, Tim Cook, who was in the audience of Apple, lectured us on how he's not going to let hate speech on his sites when really his the practices of Apple have been so reprehensible. This stuff with Harvey Weinstein, the cover-up for Harvey Weinstein, which goes right through it, almost every uh, mainstream news outlet had covered up for Harvey Weinstein. And, you know, the thing about actors is, look, actors have a talent. They have a wonderful, wonderful gift that they bring. It's not the talent of analytical thought. It's not the talent of political insight. It's the talent of pretending to be different characters, which is a wonderful thing to watch. They need to be reminded that that's what they do. I will tell you, I was at the Critics' Choice Awards on Sunday, and I I couldn't stay for the whole thing because to save the planet, they gave us a vegetarian meal, and I got so hungry that I had to leave and get something to eat. (laughs) the The part that I saw... I was stunned at how much, how little politics there were, just about zero politics in the speeches, and how much gratitude they expressed. Almost everybody got up and said, we're so lucky to be doing what we're doing. And when they remember that, they remember that the people who allow them to do what they do are us, you know, the guys that they hate and the guys they think are stupid and the, guy who's pre- the people whose president they hate so much. And maybe they ought to just keep it to themselves. They can have any political opinion they want, but they're not, you know, political thinkers. They're people who pretend to be other people because writers write lines for them. <laughs> it's a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful talent. They're lucky to be able to make a living at it. Say thank you and sit down, just like Ricky Gervais said. And I think he really did remember, remind them. Uh, who they are, what they're doing. And I think it was a good thing. I, re- I really do. You know, it's usually these things are things that we conservatives kind of chuckle about and gloat over. But I think some of those people heard what he was saying and understood that maybe they're not looking so good to the rest of us. He is Andrew Clavin, podcaster. Another Kingdom is the podcast in season three. Screenwriter of the movie Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer. Andrew, thanks for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Dan. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and uh, talking to Andrew Clavin about uh, Hollywood and uh, I tell you, it's a struggle for me to get interested in these uh, vain jejun royal pains in the ass who are trying to make their way in Hollywood, uh, Prince Albert or whatever his name is, and Meghan Markle, who went to the same college I did. Boy, 
devaluing my degree from Northwestern, no question. Uh, I sort of lost interest in British dynasts about the time Henry VIII beheaded Anne Boleyn. But nevertheless, I'm interested now for two reasons. One is this uh, Pierce Morgan piece at the Daily Mail, which just hammers Meghan Markle for playing the race card in terms of the criticism she and her hubby are now receiving from the same tabloids that fawned all over them upon the announcement of their engagement and the wedding and the whole thing, the whole pomp and circumstance across the pond there. I'll get to that. But the other connection is to Clinton Cash, where the two are uh, hiding out while they plot their next moves in Hollywood. Uh, Billionaire Canadian mining executive Frank Justra is at the center of a blockbuster series of New York Times reports that raised troubling questions about the finances of the Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea Clinton Foundation. Remember that? Remember that time in the lo- in our political lives uh, just a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, when Clinton Cash came out, the Peter Schweitzer book? Uh, one of the stories detailed how a company Juster was involved in secured the rights to uranium deposits in Kazakhstan days after September, September 2005 meeting between him, former President Bill Clinton, the Kazakh president, at which point, uh, after which, I should say, Joostra donated more than $30 million to the Clinton Foundation. But, of course, both Mr. Clinton, former president, and Mr. Joostra, the billionaire, said uh, that had nothing to do with that meeting, and uh, Bill Clinton had uh, no meaningful impact on the deal. Well, uh, this is what became known as the Uranium One story. This is the Uranium One story where cash flow to the Clinton Foundation and the Russian state-owned, a Russian state-owned nuclear company bought the Frank Juicer Uranium play for something on the order of $3 billion. Why do I recount all this? Because New York Post, page 6, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have been hiding out the home, hiding out at the home of Canadian billionaire Frank Joostra, whose close ties to the Clinton have created international controversy and so on and so forth. That's only one of them. That's only one of them. The other was uh, Joostra and Mexican billionaire Carlos Slim, who provided an endowment of $20 million in 2010 to the Clinton Foundation to set up a for-profit Haiti development fund intended to give seed money to Haitian entrepreneurs after devast- after the devastating earthquake in that poor uh, Central American country. Yet there is almost nothing in the public record showing what happened to those millions of dollars. Um, and, of course, there was all sorts of other dubious ventures going on in Haiti involving Clinton relatives and cell phone contracts and the like. Now you've got my attention, royal pains in the asses. Uh, royal pains in the ass, singular. Or asses as a collective, the entire. And uh, th- this is great, too. I mean, again, just how venal these people are. This uh, video that was circulating of uh, the two of them, meaning Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, at this uh, premiere of The Lion King in London last year. And while... Meghan Markle is imposing herself on Beyonce and Jay-Z, and Beyonce and Jay-Z appear to be very politely humoring her. Prince Harry is talking to Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney. And uh, audio is captured. And, and Harry is pitching 
Meghan Markle. You'd think she'd have an agent for this, too. What happened to whoever got her the gig on the series Suits? But anyway, he's pitching to Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, Meghan Markle to do voiceover work. Voiceover work. The uh, Duchess of Sussex or whatever her phony baloney title is. To do voiceover work in some forthcoming Disney film. Uh, Harry's saying to Bob Iger, among other things, after he pitched, you seem really surprised, but yeah, she's really interested in doing some VO work, you know, getting back in the biz. Uh, Defiling yourself for celebrity. So that's what these two want to be. So now that takes us to the Pierce Morgan piece and the other uh, arrow in their quiver that they have shot across the media that is critical of them. Uh, Meghan Markle Criticism is not a race issue. Pierce Morgan writing in the Daily Mail. Boy, the, the transformation of Pierce Morgan from when he was on CNN till he went back home to the UK. And um, I don't know, I guess that uh, distance gave him perspective on what's actually happening to the culture in the West, including America, because he has uh, basically embraced Trump and he is not mincing words when it comes to uh, leftist hypocrites. Uh, I'm enraged by the specific growing narrative that the only reason Megan's co- the only reason coverage of Megan has uh, been so harsh. Uh, Megan's behavior, I should say, has been so harshly criticized by the media is because we're all a bunch of racists living in a racist country. That's just a downright lie. And it's a particularly nasty and disingenuous lie. Well, uh, Pierce shouldn't be surprised. This is where the, the nasty and disingenuous left go. They play the race card when they can. This is in lieu of having to make a substantive claim. But he uh, provides a little historical context. From the moment Markle came on the scene, it was revealed she was from a mixed-based background. She was welcomed with open, tolerant arms by a wonderfully multicultural and diverse modern Britain that was thrilled to finally see a non-white member of the royal family. That's true. She was showered with almost universal, universal praise, especially when the engagement was announced. The media in particular was unanimous in its verdict that this was a great thing for the country. In fact, writes Pierce Morgan, I haven't seen a press so united in joy for anything since anything royal since Diana first became Charles's girlfriend. And uh, then Piers Morgan goes on to really take Markle apart. Was it racist? He asks. uh, uh, He asks about a a series of about 10 was it racist questions. Was it racist of me to criticize her and Harry for disowning Meghan's father after he foolishly but naively colluded with the paparazzi? Was it racist of me to find it bizarre? They went to such ridiculous lengths to hide basic details about their baby Archie's birth from the public that pays so much for their lavish lives. Was it racist to say it was hypocritical of Megan to have a $500,000 celebrity-fueled baby shower party in New York, including a lift on George Clooney's jet, on the same day she and Harry tweeted a plea for people to think of the poor? (laughs) Was it racist for me to... Uh, to feel it was appalling when Megan's bodyguard stopped members of the same public taking her photo at Wimbledon, the same public that finances their lifestyle, of course. Was it racist to think it was outrageous when she refused to meet President Trump during his U.K. visit? Was it racist for me to say it was dreadfully two-faced of her and Harry to preach about the need to watch every carbon footprint as they jumped on Sir Elton John's private jet every 10 minutes? And so on and so forth. You get the point. Boy, they're going to fit right into uh, the... uh, Netflix Hollywood family that have welcomed uh, the Obamas with open arms, right? Uh, I'm proud of my country for the first time sort of thing. As soon as they uh, make the right electoral choice 
And as soon as they line my pockets, as soon as I'm part of the uh, cultural Illuminati, and that's what Harry and Meghan want to be. And they'll start with VO work. That's fine. That's a fine place to start. This is the Dan Prop Show. London calling through the faraway towns. Now war is declared and battle come down. London calling. This is the Dan Prop Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, it was a great national championship college football game yesterday between LSU and Clemson. And uh, I'll tell you what, it uh, got off to a positive note with just the respectful reception that President Trump and First Lady Melania received from the crowd when they appeared on the field. Tonight, as we honor our nation, please remain standing and welcome members of the ROTC units from Louisiana State University and Clemson University, joined by the President of the United States and the First Lady. And then the chanting began. Yes, so, yeah, what uh, a national audience was reminded of is that outside of the Beltway and the uh, establishment on the eastern seaboard and on the west coast, there's uh, this whole other place called America. It's sort of like what we like to say in Illinois, which is outside the city of Chicago, there's this whole entire state called Illinois. Same sort of thing. You say, well, you're in New Orleans, you got uh, LSU, you got Clemson represented, so South Carolinians. Uh, Yeah, fine. Uh, It's still noteworthy. (laughs) Any unifying moments in this country with that many people are noteworthy. And uh, so you had a great game between uh, two great teams and two great coaches. And I want to focus in on that for a minute. A lot of people know, because he's been in the public eye for a long time, about Coach Dabo, uh, Dabo Sweeney. Clemson's football coach, but to also uh, Coach O, Ed Ogeron, and it's not just uh, you should know about him because if you put uh, cement, water, and sand in his mouth, he could turn it into concrete. I mean, <laughs> this, his Bayou voice is something. Grit, determination, belief. We always believed that we would win the game. We knew they were a great football team. They won 29 in a row. It was going to be a battle, but we was in it for 60 minutes. He's, he's almost a cartoonish caricature of a football coach, but he's, but he's a great football coach, clearly, uh, who had a great quarterback in Joe Burrow, uh, who will now join the pantheon of uh, Bayou Bengals, uh, along with the likes of, uh, well, I don't know, Pete Maravich, Shaquille O'Neal. I know basketball players, but still, legends is my point. But something about uh, Coach O. This was interesting. He said post-game in an interview on ESPN about uh, his routine. And his humility. When I say my prayers every morning at 6 o'clock, and I look at Tiger Stadium, I thank God for the opportunity to be the head coach at Louisiana State University and ask him for the words and the wisdom to give this team today. Mm. Teachers of men, both he and Coach Dabo. Uh, and this, is, this is just great. More color from Coach O, how he 
was going to celebrate after the big championship victory. You know, we're going to go back to We got a nice suite. I got I got Kelly and my three boys with me. Uh-huh. We're probably going to get a ham sandwich or maybe some boot day or something. Go to bed and wake up tomorrow and do it again. I, I don't know what boot day is he's referring to. I assume that's some sort of Cajun dish. But uh, ham sandwich, it seems like he's earned it. That's fair. <laughs> Not too extravagant. And uh, so just thinking about these coaches, too, and how great that game was and these two teams and these two coaches, because so much of our conversation about sport in this country is uh, sport being politicized, which is to say being denigrated, um, bad actors in sports that uh, secure the headlines. I mean, that's on the same day that, uh, right, Astros manager and general manager banned for a year and both then subsequently fired for cheating in the World Series same day. Uh, but but these are good stories because there are good men leading these teams. Uh, and uh, here's class act Coach Dabo uh, after the loss congratulating Coach O. Uh, they were, they were uh, definitely the better team tonight for sure. So uh, I'm really happy for Coach O. Uh, I think he's a, uh, one of the good guys in the business. And, and you know, I'm, I'm happy for him. Um, I know what it's like to, to be in that situation and, you, you pour a lot into it, and, and um, uh, you know, certainly uh, no fun to be in this seat. But, um, but I do, uh, uh, you know, just say congratulations to them and uh, a beautiful football team that earned it. And uh, we were the first 15 and 0 team last year, and, and to see them uh, do it, and uh, you know, they earned it. Simple as that. Uh, so hats off to them, and, and I thought they played with tremendous. Uh, 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 character and class and just will to win. Character, class, will to win also punctuates the Clemson football program under Coach Dabo. And I'll tell you what, you got a blue chip uh, Division One caliber football player in your family. You couldn't go wrong sending him to be uh, coached and mentored by either Coach O or Coach Dabo. This is the Dan Prop Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We've uh, talked about this issue before. Uh, Maine last year, I believe, became the eighth state to uh, greenlight so-called death with dignity legislation, euthanasia, assisted suicide. And as we've seen across the pond in Western Europe, once you uh, open this door to uh, legalize assisted suicide at the hands of medical professionals, it goes to some very ghoulish places. It's not the, it's just not what you think. It's not just the terminally ill cancer patient on his or her last breaths. It's a whole new definitions of what qualify as uh, legitimate maladies for accessing legal assisted suicide services, so-called senior disorders like hearing loss. The person who is most covered this movement over the last 25 years, and this it's not even close, is Wesley Smith. 
and he's on the job again with the reference I just made to this development in Canada. Wesley Smith is an author and senior fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism. Wesley Smith, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. So tell us about uh, what's happening with the... Uh, the Institutional Organ Donation Network up there in Ontario. Yeah, this is really alarming because when I've pointed out in assisted suicide euthanasia debates that once you legalize killing, because that's what we're talking about as an answer to human suffering, at some point people start to say, well, let's get some good out of the people being killed. And in um, Belgium and Netherlands, they actually are allowing mentally ill people people without any other organic illness, to go to hospitals who want to die because they're mentally ill, they're killing them, and then they're wheeling them into surgical suites to have their organs harvested. When I bring that up, the advocates here will say, well, that's Western Europe, that's Belgium, Netherlands, we're nothing like that here in the United States. Well, Canada's our closest cultural cousin. You don't get any closer to being an American in terms of culture as, as Canada. And in Canada, where the Supreme Court created a positive right to euthanasia, meaning lethal injection euthanasia, where doctors lethally inject you. The organ donation nonprofit, which of course we have here in the United States everywhere, contacts people who have asked to be euthanized and asked for their organs. Now, this is really a disturbing trend when you think about it, because you don't have to be really on the verge of death in Canada to be lethally injected. You have to have a death that is, quote, reasonably foreseeable, which could be years away. And they are also, by the way, about to liberalize even that. And so you're going to have people who are not actually in the process of dying, euthanized, and the organ donation organizations going to contact them and say, well, when you're killed, they won't say it that blunt but that's what we're talking about. Can we have your liver? Can we have your heart? And that could be the triggering event because the media is actually promoting this uh, in Canada so that somebody who's having a difficulty getting through the night, if you will, the idea that their deaths can have greater value than their lives could be the triggering event that makes people want to be killed. And realize also that these are people who are not given suicide prevention. So somebody who has an illness says, I want to be killed or I want euthanasia, they're not referred to a, to a suicide prevention service to help them understand why they should not want that. They're now not only killed, but referred to an organ donation organization. It's really awful. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Our Secretary of State, Jesse White, if uh, you know you sign the back of your driver's license, say you're an organ donor, uh, I'll say, hey, uh, Jesse White gives you a call. Hey, I hear you got the sniffles. You know, we'd really like your kidneys <laughs> if you decide that it's just too much to go on. I don't want to make light of it, but I mean, it is so ghoulish, as I say, I don't know a better word to describe it, that you would have the state essentially cheerleading your demise. And the media who are supposedly, uh, you know, for standing up for the powerless, right? There's another thing that's going on in Canada, uh, in Ontario in particular, but doctors are told now that if they are, and a court order has said this, a court of appeals, that if a legally qualified patient asks to be killed, that doctor must either kill that patient as a positive right to the patient or must go out and solicit the doctor that the first doctor knows will kill the patient. In other words, there's no medical conscience. So if you're a Hippocratic oath-believing doctor or if you're, a let's say, a Catholic doctor because they're the ones who sued and you believe that homicide, that's what we're talking about, is a cardinal sin. You have to hire a hitman. You, you have to hire the hitman or, and as the courts have said, if you don't want to do this, get out of medicine. And what's really awful about this, when you think about it in terms of liberty, 
is that Canada has a stronger protection of freedom of religion than the United States. Their charter guarantees the right of freedom of religion and conscience, where ours guarantees the right of free exercise of religion. And even though there's that very strong Canadian protection, the court said there's a stronger right, which of course the court invented, to equitable and equal access to health care. So an, a non-charter right and we've seen that here in the United States, has trumped a specifically explicit enumerated charter right because the culture of death will not be denied. Speak to the issue of how this inevitably expands once it's legalized up and down age demographics across different maladies, both psychological as well as physical. What we've seen, what the experience in the Netherlands and Belgium, perhaps even on the West Coast in places like Oregon and California tells us. What happens is is this. When you think about why would people why do people support legalization of assisted suicide or euthanasia? It's because they see killing as an acceptable answer to human suffering. And if the idea of killing is acceptable because of human suffering, then there are a lot of people who suffer for a far longer period and may suffer far greater uh, anguish or greater uh, experience of, of uh, discomfort than people who are terminally ill. And so logically, how can you deny it? So if somebody is has cancer and is going to live for six months, the activists say, well, let's give them assisted suicide. So the person who says, well, I'm going to live nine months and I'm in terrible fear and I, I, uh, I want assisted suicide too. Well, how do you say no to that person? How do you say no to the person who's in anguish because they become disabled? And the fact over the period of time when people get more used to this, they don't. And so you end up, as has occurred in the Netherlands with even the mentally ill. In uh, Belgium, you had this is a, one of the worst cases I've heard of. You had a woman, and this is the Me Too movement time, right? She was sexually predated by a very famous psychiatrist who was her psychiatrist. She was the patient. And when she went public and said, look, this guy took advantage of my vulnerability to predate me in a sexual way, uh, they did nothing. So she went to another psychiatrist and she was so distraught because nothing was done that the second psychiatrist euthanized her. It's just remarkable. Wesley Smith, author, senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center for uh, Center on Human Exceptionalism, who uh, you should absolutely follow, and you should absolutely follow this Death with Dignity movement, what's happening in, in uh, eight American states, in Canada, in Western Europe. Um, this, is a, this is a real threat, uh, the culture of death, as Wesley Smith said. Wesley, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Listen, the more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So yesterday, Jack Wilson, a sharpshooter who took out the shooter at uh, the church in White Settlement, Texas, outside of Fort Worth uh, the other week. Jack Wilson was honored uh, with the Medal of Courage, which is the highest civilian honor that can be conferred by the state on an individual. Governor Greg Abbott there to present Jack Wilson with the Medal of Courage. Governor's Medal of Courage awarded to William Jack Wilson, January 13, 2020. Yeah. That is definitely an appropriate award for the lives that Jack Wilson saved at that church in taking out that gunman. Good guy with a gun. It's so interesting. Uh, 
thinking about that against the uh, departure of a gun grabber like Cory Booker from the presidential race on the same day, the departure of Bobby O'Rourke from the state of Texas, also a gun grabber, and frankly, a religious bigot, anti-Christian gun grabber, uh, his departure from the race weeks earlier. Uh, speaking of heroes, uh, also wanted to uh, raise this, the, the prospect of the investigation into the what we now know, what is finally being called a terrorist attack on the Naval Air Station Pensacola. Uh, Attorney uh, General William Barr calling the December attack by the Saudi aviation student that killed three people in active terrorism. And also, and remember here, we had another hero, a good guy who didn't have a gun. And this is a whole other conversation about uh, uh, servicemen and women being able to protect themselves on these bases. Joshua Caleb Watson, who was killed, one of the three killed. Right. Remember, he was shot and he was able to get out of that classroom and out to law enforcement to tell them where the shooter was. Died a hero saving lives. But there's a, a battle again, and this is reminiscent of the battle between the FBI and Apple after the uh, terrorist attack in San Bernardino. Apple defying a court order to assist the FBI back in 2015 in its efforts to search the device of the shooter, setting off a fight over whether privacy enabled uh, encryption harmed public safety. The dispute was resolved when the FBI found a private company that could bypass the, uh, the iPhone's encryption. And uh, it may be the case here as well, because uh, Bill Barr, that same attorney general, calling on Apple to help with two phones, provide access to two phones that were used by the gunmen who killed those people at the Pensacola Naval Air Station. A lot of changes that need to happen. Uh, The expelling of Saudi uh, students here, military students, uh, some that had child pornography, some that had access to. Uh, or in possession of extremist uh, content, radical Islamic extremist content. So what we're doing with respect to vetting and how much we're trusting erstwhile allies like Saudi Arabia to do their own vetting before they send their military men and women over here. The situation with security on military installations and this uh, running battle between law enforcement and big tech when it comes to cooperating with legitimate law enforcement investigations. As Senator Tom Cotton said, companies shouldn't be allowed to shield criminals and terrorists from lawful efforts to solve crimes and protect our citizens. Apple has a notorious history of siding with terrorists over law enforcement. I hope in this case they'll change course and actually work with the FBI. I hope they will too, where we're going to have to put a little bit more political and perhaps legal pressure on Apple to do so. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prop Show. President Trump, uh, in November of last year, you recall, pardoned three members of the military. Ultimately led to uh, resignation of uh, Army Secretary uh, over one of the uh, pardons. Uh, the uh, uh, perhaps most controversial is, uh, I, I think, Navy Secretary, excuse me, Uh, The most controversial was Navy Special Operations Chief Edward Gallagher. But one of the other individuals who was pardoned and uh, ordered immediately released from Leavenworth was uh, former First Lieutenant Clint Lawrence, who was convicted of second-degree murder in 2013 for uh, crimes he uh, allegedly committed, was convicted of committing in Afghanistan 
during his time serving our country. And uh, we are pleased to be joined by former First Lieutenant Clint Lawrence to tell his story. Clint, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. If you could just take us through uh, what happened in 2012, your conviction in 2013, and then fast forward six years to being pardoned and released by President Trump and what that was like. Sure. It's kind of it's kind of difficult to uh, really understand the, the gravity of a situation that I was faced with in, in 2012. And for your listeners, uh, I'll give you the, the helicopter view, which is I was convicted under the Obama administration uh, for engaging with the enemy and killing the enemy in combat. And so, you know, that sounds kind of ridiculous, but that's just the, that's the reality of, of how things were under the, the last administration. And you've been talking a lot about socialism and, and you know, policies that, that really affect the, the people of, of Illinois and the people that are listening right now and that affect them on a very personal level. And, you know, I, it's not lost on me that, that Illinois just lost one of its finest paratroopers and Miguel Villalone from Aurora, where I, I, I currently, I'm actually leaving Aurora right now this morning. So, um, you know, I, I, I tell you, we are still in this war. Um, these people over there, they want to kill us. And, you know, we could come over here and we could leave them all over there to, to do their own thing. And they would still come over here and try to kill us. It's just how it is when you have a capitalist society where anybody can succeed if you work hard enough and you you're disciplined with yourself everybody's going to want to want a part of that and so unfortunately there are some bad apples in the world who who want to come over and disrupt that so in terms of to, to your initial question of what happened in afghanistan um uh, we were on a combat foot patrol. I was an infantry paratrooper, uh, and that's that is also why uh, para, the paratrooper from Illinois here, uh, PFC Bill alone, is, is some someone that's close to my heart right now, and I'm honored to be able to actually come here um, to his hometown because you know I was a paratrooper. I was an officer in the 82nd Airborne Division, and uh, that's something that's very near and dear to my heart whenever one of my own uh, is taken out by this vicious enemy. And so I I think the people of Aurora can be very proud right now. But in terms of what happened to to me during 2012, we were engaging with the enemy. Uh, We had a a motorcycle who fit all of the the profile of, um, and that may not be a very popular word to use in Chicago, profile, but um, it it fit all of the parameters of uh, of what the enemy was doing all around us on a daily basis. And we have something called patterns of life that we study in the military. And what that is is we study what the enemy is doing because we've got to be responsible enough. If we're going to take young men and women into battle, then we as officers have to be responsible to study exactly how the enemy operates and what they do on a daily basis, when they eat, when they pray, when they do everything. And so in terms of the way that these people were operating on this motorcycle, they were operating in, in the same pattern of life as all of the other enemy that we had been killed by and, and, and shot by. And, uh, and, and I say, we, I mean, NATO forces over there. So we were, we were just getting, we were getting hammered by the, the Taliban. And, and, you know, 
I'm not saying that, you know, the United States doesn't hammer back. Under President Trump, we do. Under President Obama, we could not. So the way that the way that the reality of the war under President Obama was that if American forces were to get shot at by the Taliban, you had to ask your, yourself a question as an officer, am I going to Leavenworth for ordering my men and women to shoot back? And so it's a very, it's a very delicate situation. It's a very stressful situation that I wouldn't ask anyone to be to go and volunteer to, to put themselves in. Well, well just, so that's it, sort just, of where we were. Yeah, can you put, put us in that place in Kandahar province where you were and your men were and, you know, go back to the motorcycle, the guys on the motorcycle, and the decision you had to make because the decision was second-guessed not just by uh, the military that court-martialed you, but also by some of the men in your platoon. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just, you know, let me preface this by saying that the the men in my platoon had known me for about 72 hours. So okay. I, I watched the, the, the Leavenworth documentary on on my, my case, and, and I asked my family that was sitting there with me they kind of you know strong army into watching it I, I said I was never going to watch it but uh so I watched it and I, I asked them I was like who is that I don't know who that is like the, the people in the doc- documentary I only knew like two of them and so my thing is you know you said that, that these were members of my platoon well sure they were for about 72 hours but after that you know I was the new guy I was the the guy that when everybody when the army uh investigators and the army chain of command came in and brought everybody into one tent except for me and said, we're separating all of you guys and, and, and we're separating the officer from the platoon and the platoon all was in one tent and they essentially sat around one table and they gave them all a sworn statement and they said, everybody write down your sworn statement. Well, Dan, what do you think is going to happen? What no, do you think is going to happen in that situation? But, but, but even prior and, to, but, but even prior to that, prior to, Sort of how uh, it it uh, it developed after the event, that event, and the, the just that decision that you made at, in that moment at that time, what you were seeing, the decision you made, and then you know we can get sure. to the uh, you know the Rashomon uh, argument about who saw what and who thinks what you know who's who thinks sure. they saw something different than the other guy. Sure, you're asking me a mens rea question, and I appreciate that yeah. because it gives me the yeah. opportunity to present that. And so essentially. Uh, what I'm thinking as the only officer on the ground is there, there are all of these nuances and, and all of these situations that you have to take into account when you're, when you're the, the officer on the ground making the decision on the fly. And you've got a couple of seconds to make the decision. So I'm thinking in my mind, I'm thinking, number one, first and foremost, I'm not going to send one of my paratroopers home to Aurora, Illinois, in a body bag. I'm not going to do it, okay? And so I'm not. I've, I've got to think of. I've got to think of all the men and women who are under my command. They're 18, 19, 20 years old. They joined the military to fight in a war in a time of war, and to me that makes them heroes. And so I'm thinking to myself, I can't let them down. I cannot let their families down. I've got to do everything I can to protect them. And so. I've got to make the best decisions I can possibly make. And, oh, by the way, I've got a couple of seconds to make each decision. And I've also got to think of the relationship between the United States and the rest of the world. So if we've got an American officer or any American military uh, person out there making a decision that makes the United States of America look bad on the world stage, then that's not good. 
And so nobody wants to be that officer. Nobody wants to be that guy or gal. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've got to make the right decision that brings my men home, that makes the United States, that upholds the, the reputation of the United States, that makes sure that the Afghan army people, Afghan army soldiers that are under my command also, or that we're working with, also are protected and are okay and don't don't get uh, uh, ambushed or anything like that. And so you're thinking of all these different relationships. And the biggest thing is is that that reputation of the United States. That's something that is drilled into you from day one because you've got the red, white, and blue on your shoulder. And so when you're going, that's the only part of your uniform that's not camouflaged, right? And so you're going into these these foreign countries and. Every, all soldiers pretty much look the same from all the NATO countries. But when they see that red, white, and blue, they see something that means something. And that's something that you would never, in a million years, in your right mind, you would never, ever tarnish that. And so that's something that I was thinking of. We're speaking with Clint Lawrence, former Army officer, pardoned by President Trump. And I want to talk to him more about the timeline of the events and how they played out. More with Clint when we get back on The Dan Prop Show. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we're speaking with former army officer clint lawrence who was pardoned by president trump in november clint just give us the the, the timeline here just so we, we're, we're working off the same uh uh Sure. Same set of facts here. So you you see these guys on the motorcycle and, and as, as well as your men do, uh, and uh, they fit the profile, like you say. You're describing what you have to be on guard for on the ground in Kandahar right. province. You order them to open fire. They open fire. They kill what, at at least two of them, right? And uh, and well, uh, let me let me stop you. Let me stop you, Dan. Okay. So I first of all. Uh, and I'm sorry for interjecting, but no, I ahead. don't get to be on your show every day. This is a great honor. Um, so uh, I did not order them to open fire initially. The Afghan army soldiers who were up front, order, they opened fire. They, they are the guys, they, okay. it's their country. Okay. They're the ones most familiar with the language and the culture. They open fire first, okay. right? And, th- and you can, there's, there, there's a book out there you can read about this. There's a documentary out there that I re- wouldn't really recommend because they didn't get all the facts straight. But you know, the, the Afghan army soldiers opened fire first. And so my soldier, who was also a police officer in civilian life, turned around to me and said, sir, can I fire? And so who in the world am I to tell my soldiers, my American paratroopers, that they cannot defend themselves? And so I'm thinking to myself, all of those different nuances in my mind and all those different uh, things that I had to take into account, I'm thinking of all of those things. And, and this is Dan, this is a couple of seconds of time. No, no, I look, I, no, I, I, under, I understand, and, I understand, but I just, I just want to get this. So, so then, so Afghan soldiers open fire first. You, you uh, green light your guy to open fire to support their fire. And and who did these, uh, who did these guys on the motorcycle turn out to be? They turned out to be bomb makers who had blood of Americans and Canadian soldiers mm-hmm. on their hand. Mm-hmm. We had, we have pictures. My defense team had pictures of American soldiers and Canadian soldiers and Marines who were killed by people 
associated with these guys. Their DNA fingerprints and biometric evidence was found on bombs that exploded to kill, kill, kill our soldiers. And so at the end of the day, what was happening in 2012 while I was there, and I hope, I hope you don't think I'm aggressive when I'm talking to you. I'm passionate about this kind of stuff. I, I want to fix your life, this system I so it doesn't ever happen yeah. to anybody else. Yeah. Yeah, well, sure, yeah. sure, but I'm not a, I'm not a victim. I, I, I'm passionate about this kind of stuff because it's still happening in our military. The president is doing everything he can to try to fix this, but he's one guy at the top, and he can't do this all by himself. And that's why when we have a, a, a congressman that comes in like Jim Overweis, who actually brought me here to Illinois, and who cares about this kind of stuff, it's something that is, is very near and dear to my heart. It, was, it, it didn't take me more than a couple of seconds to research what Jim was all about by looking at his campaign site and saying, yes, he supports the military. He understands the, the, the issues and the, the delicate situations that were put in. So, yes, I'll support him. And, so and at the end of the day, when you, have, when you have soldiers who, when you have men and women who go over into harm's way, into these terrible, terrible places, we would never support, as a, as a population, as a country, I, we would never support someone in, in wearing the uniform of the world's greatest military going off base and just doing whatever he wants to do that day. I, I would not support that. And you would not support that. Amy, you would not support so, that. Nobody so, supports that. So Clint, right? so, so Clint, so, so Clint, so we have a soldier who is making a, a, a decision in good faith, then we need to stand behind that soldier. Right. But so, when we have a soldier who is making a decision in bad faith, then yes, send him to Leavenworth. So, so Clint, so the, this is uh, the, the question, too. You, people hear that's a series of events, as you're describing, and the, the split-second decisions you had to make. And why didn't everybody, especially given who these individuals turned out to be that were killed, why didn't everybody feel vindicated that you made the right call? Why do you think that is? Well, because they were made out to be enemies of the state from the United States Army Criminal Investigation Division from the very beginning. So when, when the chain of command decided, and, and, and you know, I've looked at your bio, and, and Dan, and I, I know you, you ran for governor and so on and so forth. I'm not, not, not specific on your, your military experience. Yeah, I don't but have the chain any. Of command, when the chain of command makes a decision in the Army, this is a sad fact of, the, of reality. When one colonel in the Army, not unlike the lieutenant colonel you just talked about five minutes ago, when one colonel in the Army makes a decision on their own about what things are going to be, then all the other officers underneath them fall in line. That is called hierarchy. It's called the chain of command. It's how it works. And so when a colonel, when a full bird colonel, Colonel Brian Menace, made the decision that he was going to throw me under the bus to make the people of Af the, the government of, of Afghanistan happy and the Obama administration happy, he did that, and everybody underneath him fell in line because I was the new guy. Nobody knew me. I had been there for a matter of hours, and it was an, I was an easy target. Now, we don't have a lot of time, but, but you, now you're, do you do um, almost six years in Leavenworth, and that couldn't have been enjoyable, and then you get the word that uh, President Trump is going to pardon you and order your release. Uh, get, tell us about that moment when you found out. Yeah, the president is just an amazing guy, and I think that if, if the entire country could could see him when there are no cameras around, they would love him, Democrats, because the guy goes out of his way to make people feel comfortable because he knows that he's the president and you're not, and it's probably going to be intimidating you talking to him. So he's just an amazing guy. He understands the, the, the personal interactions, the human interactions of, of people, and he's just, he's somewhat, he told me, he said, Clint, you know, I had the opportunity to meet with the president three times. I talked to him once on the phone, and I, I met him in person twice in Miami. And so he, he told me, he said, Clint, this is something that is going to make a lot of people mad. 
He's like, but I don't care because it's the right thing to do. And so I thought to myself, I was like, you know what? We need more leaders like that in this country. Some people who are, they do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. It doesn't matter who's paying for it or endorsing it. It's the right thing to do. So he's doing it. And so, you know, at the, at the end of the day, I think we need more people like that in this country. I, I, I said on Fox and Friends that I, I love the guy for it. And why would I not be loyal to a guy that let me out of prison because I was wrongly convicted? There are – look, look, here's, here's the, the reality of it. it. This is Chicago, right? If I were an African-American and there were DNA evidence to exonerate me, people would be rioting in the streets. So where were these people? Where were these great Democrats? When I was in prison, wrongly, with DNA evidence to prove that I was not supposed to be there. President Trump and people like Jim Oberweis stepped up. And that's exactly what we need more of in this country, Dan. And that's what you need more of right here in Illinois. Well, don't get me started on what we need in Illinois. But, uh, Clint Lawrence, you're in town for events for Jim Oberweis. I just want to give you a chance to plug those events. People want to come see you uh, before we have to let you go. Well, you know, thank you very much. I'm actually going to be in Bolingbrook uh, this morning for... A breakfast event. We're going to be in Schaumburg this afternoon this during lunch, uh, and then for this evening we're going to be in Hotley. So I'm I'm happy to, to be given the grand tour here this this beautiful uh, area of Illinois. You guys have a great state here. It's something to be proud of, and it's really something worth fighting yeah, for. We used to have a great state. Uh, Clinton Lawrence uh, and people want more information on the events where Clinton Lawrence is going to be appearing on behalf of congressional candidate Jim Oberweis. Go to Jim Oberweis's campaign website. Clinton Lawrence, former first lieutenant in the U.S. Army. Uh, pardoned by President Trump in November of 2019. There is a series about his case. He, I know he, you sort of don't recommend it. You sort of do because it didn't get everything right from your perspective. But there is a Stars documentary called series called Leavenworth. Clint, thanks so much for joining us and enjoy your time in Illinois. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. You have a good day. You too. She was a Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, nothing and no one is safe from the uh, postmodernist race racketeers and their uh, demand to insinuate race in everything. Uh, To my point, James Freeman over at the Wall Street Journal picking up this story from The Lancet, which is uh, one of the premier peer-reviewed medical journals, medical journals in the world. In a book review, the uh, British uh, Medical Journal published uh, a review of the book The Dying of Whiteness. The reviewer writes... In Dying of Whiteness, Jonathan Maitzel attempts to trace the connections uh, between uh, white racial terror and premature death. Attempts to trace these connections by probing how the armed defense of whiteness harms and sometimes kills white people. Situations situating his analysis within the political landscapes of Missouri, Tennessee, Kansas. 
Metzl explores how white Americans arm themselves with guns or votes and attempt to individually secure the benefits of whiteness, shaping in the process the population health comes of everyone living in the wake of their political decisions, including other white people. From expansive gun legislation to broad divestment in government programs, uh, the author characterizes white liberties that endanger white lives or imperil white futures as dying of whiteness. This is in a medical journal. Why uh, that took up this book and this book reviewer. Uh, And it uh, just speaks to the identitarian politics that dominates the left in the West. USA Today op-ed from Kate Brannon. Trump's white male team is a bad look for America and bad for national security, too. Trump huddling with his national security team in the Situation Room discussing the Iran crisis. Those photos, everyone was pictured, everyone pictured was white and male, with the exception of Stephanie Grisham, his White House press secretary. Um, Gina Haspel called into those meetings. She's the first female CIA director ever, but okay. Uh, And uh, this makes us too white, too male, and by definition unsafe as it pertains to national security decisions like whether or not to strike Soleimani, uh, who's back-channeling to the Iranians through the Swiss embassy, as we now know. All of that cannot be assessed without understanding the gender and the race of the people doing the work. For more on this topic, because he's written about it for decades and he's got a new piece at uh, WalterEWilliams.com, the new racism is his piece. We're pleased to be joined by George Mason University economics professor and syndicated columnist Walter Williams. Professor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for inviting me. So uh, what about uh, Trump's uh, national security team is too white and male and uh, people in uh, states like Missouri are dying of whiteness? Uh, it's, it's just part of the uh, insanity that we're living uh, in today. And, uh, and, and what a lot of people don't realize uh, is that most of the insanity uh, uh, has the, you know, it emanates from uh, our college campuses because this is where the students are taught uh, this kind of stuff, and then they, when they graduate, they bring it out in the world, and 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 we uh, and we begin to uh, tolerate things that we would not otherwise tolerate. Uh, it's uh, you know, for for example, the Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Uh, they're condemned as, uh, you know, uh, old white men running for the uh, presidency. Uh, and people actually come out and say that. Uh, and then I point out in the column that there's this uh, Latosha Brown, who's the founder of Black Voters Matter. Uh, she says, I'm over white men running the country. Uh, <laughs> I don't know uh, if if he gets in, uh, changes the field. Uh you have Michael Moore uh, with uh, racist quotes, and and Barack Obama, uh, when when he is campaigning for president, he's, the presidency, he was talking about working class uh, white voters. They get bitter and cling to their guns of religion. Uh, and then then uh, recently, I believe it was, um, oh, the fellow who won, who he ran and lost. Uh, uh, he, he said that uh, that. That uh, yeah, Howard Dean. He says if we have two old white guys on top of the ticket, we're going to lose. I mean, the the, uh, the the it's it's racism. Uh, I don't care whether you're talking about black people, white people, uh, red people, or, or brown people. Uh, racism is racism, and this new newer form of racism that we begin to tolerate is is no better than the old form of racism. Uh, I want to pick up on uh, the state of campus culture. 
uh, when we return. We're talking to uh, Walter Williams. He's a professor of economics at George Mason University, syndicated columnist. We'll be right back with more Professor Walter Williams on the Dan Prof Show. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with George Mason University economics professor and nationally syndicated columnist Walter Williams. And Professor Williams, we were talking about uh, the new racism, uh, just as pernicious as the old racism, and it's really being incubated on college campuses in significant measure. It's interesting, there's a, a new study out from a professor of education and social justice at the University of Birmingham across the pond who looked at um, uh, uh, the state of higher education in the U.K., and did uh, 30 interviews of those who attended programs designed to support black ethnic minorities as part of these diver- the diversity uh, curriculum on college campuses. And uh, his conclusion was that uh, these college trainings that are designed to help minorities advance are ineffective and may even have a uh, counterproductive, the counterproductive result of boosting whatever they call white privilege. Point is that, you know, diversity, diversity, diversity as the altar uh, uh, on which all must pray doesn't serve the interests of the intended beneficiaries. That's his takeaway. Well, well, I, I think that there's, there's, there's a measure of, of, of truth to, to that, and that is when you have various programs to increase the number of black students on college campuses, uh, many times the, they're they're recruited to uh, campuses uh, that are uh, you know high-powered campuses in terms of intellectual achievement on, on most of the students, and they and they fall behind. Uh, um, my colleague Tom Soule he did a study some years ago, and he pointed out that over 50% of the black students at the, in the engineering school at at MIT were on academic probation, but these uh, black students who were uh, at MIT. They were in the top five percent nationally on the quantitative portion of the uh, SAT. Their their problem was is that everybody else at MIT in the engineering school was in the top one percent, which placed them at the very bottom of their class, and they were recruited to uh, MIT and to be turned into failures. And this happens over and over over again, where where black students are. Are, are are recruited and they're and they're put in over their head and they and they're turned into failures. Where if they went to a less powerful school, but none, nonetheless respectable, uh, they they might indeed do very very well. You've had a long and storied career in academia at George Mason University, and so you have a historical perspective, an institutional perspective that few do. And I just wonder, as you look back over the last half century. If are there any ways in which or what are the ways, I should say, what are the ways in which things on a college campus, George Mason, any other college campus have improved for uh, minority students? Well, it's uh, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard to tell. Um, 
the uh, students are continue to be uh, brought into colleges who are not prepared for college. As a matter of fact, it turns out that that uh, just about close to 50% of all incoming freshmen, uh, black and white and brown and yellow, uh, in, uh, 50% of incoming freshmen require remedial uh, math, remedial English, remedial writing. And that suggests that they don't belong in college. That is, they have fraudulent degrees, but nonetheless, the colleges will admit these students uh, to these remedial classes, and many of them flunk out of college, don't even graduate in the first place, and the colleges do it because they're after the dollars. Uh, yet that is, more students, more dollars. And so they, uh, so, so I, I think that things have become actually worse on college campuses, uh, not only for black students, but everybody else. And is, is that largely just a function of, of the identitarian politics we're talking about, the postmodernism that takes many forms, but none of them are intellectually rigorous? No, that, that's right. That's right. And, and, uh, and I, I'm, I'm writing a column for next week, and it shows that one, there's some professors making the argument that the reason why the, we don't have enough women in the uh, in the science, technology, uh, engineering, and math courses, the so-called STEM courses, is because the professors in those courses grade too harshly. Mm-hmm. And what they're suggesting is that the professors uh, uh, lighten up on their grading. And and so that's that's tragic in the following sense: not only it does it uh, uh, injure uh, females who who uh, get the uh, uh, fraudulent degrees or, or get the easy grades, but it also uh, injures uh, males because they lower standards for everybody. Speaking of a softening, uh, you also wrote a piece on the unappreciated costs of crime, and there's a real move in big urban centers like New York City and, and New York State with its quote-unquote bail reform legislation in places like Cook County where we're effectively decriminalizing the theft of property worth less than $1,000, places like Philadelphia with Larry Krasner, the new DA there, to uh, really focus on ending mass incarceration. And I wonder uh, what your view on that is. Well, my my view is is that uh, there are not enough people incarcerated. That is, when, uh, let's say, like in, in the city of Chicago, there's a shooting every three and a half hours, and there's a homicide uh, every 18 hours. Now, and, and matter of fact, and, and adding to the tragedy, uh, over 90% of the homicides are not cleared. That is only 10%, they, they, they only arrest 10, 10% of the people involved with these homicides. And so that's suggesting with all this crime that's going on is that there, that there are not enough people uh, in jail. That is, we don't have enough of these criminals off the street and, and to prevent them from preying on law-abiding, uh, honest citizens who are trying to live their lives. So the the whole notion of, of over-incarcerating, uh, I think, is absolutely wrong. And it's not just a matter of the safety of law-abiding. It's also in the economic interest of the law-abiding in these neighborhoods. Oh, oh yes. That is, what, criminal activity raises, uh, I'm sorry, criminal activity lowers the value of all activities in within the community. That is, uh, stores, supermarkets won't locate in those uh, communities because they just cannot afford to deal with the crime. Uh, uh, the, the housing prices uh, fall in those communities. That is, you find you find houses in some poor neighborhoods, high crime neighborhoods, that couldn't fetch ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars. But when there's gentrification, when when the middle class and upper middle class people move in, 
and you get better amenities and more, greater police protection, the house the prices shoot through the ceiling. We've seen that in Washington, we've seen that in Philadelphia and other areas where, where uh, uh, you know, different people uh, uh, occupying the property <laughs> and having greater respect for the law uh, increases the value of all activity in the community. He is Professor Walter Williams, longtime economics professor at George Mason University and syndicated columnist. Professor Williams, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. And thanks for inviting me. I can see you. Your brows get shining in the sun. I see you walking real slow. Smiling at everyone. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This is an interesting piece. Uh, this is about uh, PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And it's not just that they're a, a crazy leftist group. It's that they're a fraud. Uh, they're a fraud. A lot of you probably know about their ridiculous campaigns, uh, suing to free orca whales from SeaWorld under 13th and 14th Amendment, anti-slavery arguments, treating... Orca whales, like they're human beings, covered by the uh, the 13th and 14th Amendments. Uh, the marketing campaigns, billboards and the like, Holocaust on your plate, a plate of chicken, comparing uh, chicken farms and people eating chicken to uh, Holocaust victims. Well, this in uh, out of Australia a site called uh, Vocal Media, and this very good piece by Jenna Didi uh, about PETA's Australia, uh, Australia chapter. Of course, uh, thinking about the wildfires in Australia that have uh, devastated the ecosystem there, in part, uh, that would necessarily include the uh, animal kingdom there. It's been estimated that one billion mammals, birds, and reptiles have died in the wildfires in Australia. Um, caused by dry conditions, hot temperatures. Oh, by the way, 180 people have been arrested for arson, too. Let's not forget the arsonists. Uh, 34 native animal spe- uh, species and subspecies have all died out in uh, Australia in the last 200 years, which uh, makes Australia a country with one of the highest extinction rates on Earth. Uh, but that doesn't mean you should be giving money to PETA, which took in $50 million last year, just the Australia chapter. But the truth is, less than 1% of that money went into actually helping animals. The rest of the money was used on advertising, public disturbances, paying off celebrity spokespersons, lobbying politicians and business into getting what they want. And they want one thing, and only one thing, total animal liberations, quote-unquote. No zoos, no aquariums, no responsible meat or dairy consumption, no pets, no wildlife conservation efforts that require rehabilitation or breeding programs, and no use of animals for therapy. Purposes. For example, PETA is against guide dogs for the blind. This is how ridiculous this organization is. They also kill animals. As of 2018, PETA has killed around 39,961 adoptable animals, while only 3,459 animals, less than 7%, 7.5% of all animals that were taken in by PETA, uh, were uh, adopted out. 
PETA employees often kill the animals within 24 hours after taking them into custody. And just to make matters worse, their very own animal shelter, located on the fourth floor of their headquarters in Virginia, consists of only three rooms nestled among cubicles and conference rooms used to discuss new plans to profit off animal and wildlife tragedies in the name of quote-unquote animal rights. PETA, you want to, you love animals, you want to help animals, that's great. And there are many good organizations, shelters to support. Uh, one of the good organizations is not PETA. And uh, appreciate Janet Didi's expose on that ridiculous extremist organization. This is the Dan Proctor. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prop Show. Gallup doing their uh, annual survey of the distribution across the political spectrum, how people identify, uh, finding that the uh, share of conservatives in 2019, people who self-identified as conservatives, ticked up from 35 percent to 37 percent. The share of conservatives increasing for the first time since uh, 2011 uh, with the tailwind of Tea Party energy and uh, liberals declining such that there is now a... 14-point spread between those who self-identify as conservative and those who self-identify as liberal. That would seem to bode well for the election year with respect to the presidency and, frankly, Senate congressional races. But, you know, then you get into definitions of, okay, I self-identify as conservative. What does that mean to me? I self-identify as liberal. What does that mean to me? But nonetheless, the spread is directionally interesting. The only thing that could potentially disrupt that is the ongoing schism, if it become something that is pronounced among Christians when it comes to Trump. Can uh, a handful of never-Trumpers, and I suppose uh, some moralizers on the left, like Red Diaper Baby, uh, Red Diaper Mannequin, really, uh, Pete, or even a scold like Elizabeth Warren, can they shame Christians into, if not voting for the left, not supporting Trump? You know, this all stems from uh, the brouhaha over the holidays with respect to this Christianity Today editorial calling for Trump's conviction and removal from office because he is not a man of character fit for the office. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Eric Metaxas. He's the author of If You Can Keep It, The Forgotten Promise of American Liberty and host of the nationally syndicated Eric Metaxas Show. Uh, He has uh, written The Christian Case for Trump, an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal that addresses some of the criticisms that have been lodged both at, uh, at Trump as well as Christians who are supporting him. Eric, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. It's great to join you. And just so you understand, I'm joining you from the back of a taxi cab in Manhattan, New York City. All right. Where the weather is quite different. But uh, let me just tell you, when people talk about a rift among evangelicals, that is the definition of fake news. There is no rift among evangelicals. The reason I say that is that most people that I know understand the basics of what it means to elect a president. They don't believe that you're electing somebody to be a pastor or that most of the people, you know, who rise to run for the nation's highest office uh, have themselves had uncheckered past. I mean, all you have to do is think of the man on our 50 cent piece, John F. Kennedy, still highly revered. We now know that he brought prostitutes into the White House regularly. 
while he was president, not 10 years before that he did some weird stuff. We know that FDR um, you know, lied to the American people about his health so that he could get a third and a fourth term. We know that he, he had a mistress throughout his presidency. We have had good and great leaders who have not risen morally to the standard that serious Christians would like. But after you suffered through four, uh, eight years of President Obama, you realize there is something even more important than, you know, the, the personal life uh, of the, the president. You have to think about their policies. And when you talk about morality, this is the funny thing, Dan, is that when people talk about morality, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, what are the policies of this president toward the poor? Is he going to improve the economy to lift people up, to give them chance, to give them a hope? Or is he going to play into the narrative that they are kind of permanent losers who, who need government assistance, who will never be able to get a decent job and all that kind of stuff? So if you really care about the poor beyond virtue signaling, you have to you have to think about that. You have to think about that. But wait, if you but, care but, about the unborn, you have to think about that. So moral issues don't only go to the personal character of the person you're electing. They go to what would the policies of that person do. And in the case of the choices that we have now and the choice we had with Hillary Clinton, to me it becomes an open and, and shut case. And I'm far from alone in thinking that. No, that's true. But And the, the criticism you get from never-Trumpers, Christian never-Trumpers, is, uh, well, that sounds like uh, uh, a transactional outlook, that it's, it's somebody can be a yeah, reprobate. You know, but you know what somebody can be a, a reprobate. Yeah. A transactional outlook is called voting. Mm-hmm. Whenever you vote for someone who's a human being other than Jesus Christ, you are making a transaction. Now, the key is that people try to say, that transactions are by definition dirty. That's utter nonsense. It's, it's like when I go buy a loaf of bread, I don't think, well, you know what, I really should have prayed first to see if God would deliver the loaf of bread. Paying for it really kind of wipes out the possibility of God doing something miraculous. I mean, transactional is not dirty. It can be dirty. There are dirty transactions. But when people lodge the claim of transactionalism, I say, stop right there. That is called voting. That is called representational government. We've done it from the beginning. We voted for for slaveholders like Thomas Jefferson. Let, let's be serious. Let's not gaslight each other and pretend that Christians can't vote unless they vote for somebody who who is a saint. You know, and even before saints were saints, most of them were sinners. So it gets a little silly. What What about the argument that look, ultimately, character is destiny, and so you're hitching a wagon to someone that is going to a dark place because he is a person of dark character? Well, to to call Trump a person of dark character to me, th- there's a level of subjectivity to it that makes it utterly stupid. I mean, what does that even mean that he's a character of dark character? He, he's he's a person of dark character. First of all, I, I heartily disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. I think he's a man who loves his family, who loves his country, who actually does put his country before his own business and his own money. And that if that were not the case, the last thing he would have done would be run for president at this stage in his life. He didn't need to do that. So I, I think this is sniping. This is people looking for something to say 
And I don't think they have anything to say. Yeah, it seems to me that lost in all of the discussion on personal characters that your policy choices are also also tell us something about your personal character. And so both should be assessed through a prism of character. And uh, and just because there are things that you don't like that Trump has said or done at present or in the distant past doesn't mean that you've now ceded a- any ability to I mean, apply my, a character test to politicians. To let Hillary to let Hillary Clinton become president. No, but I mean, I mean, I'm talking about profoundly... pro- but I'm talking about prospectively, prospectively, prospectively. Well, no, no, it, it, right. it's, the, it's the same thing. I mean, on the one hand, we had Hillary Clinton. Now we have people who are dramatically more progressive. And that's a nice word for it. I mean, they are socialistic. They are saying things that I think your average American says, what? You're you're kidding me. Like you're pushing, you know, the the transgender thing, like it's the most important moral issue of our time. You're pushing free everything for everybody. Anybody who raises a family and has a job and has a checkbook knows like that really doesn't work. The only people who think that might work are, you know, 20 year old college students who themselves have never had uh, to do payroll or balance a checkbook, and they go, "Hey, that'd be great! Like, I'd love to get you know free college, or I'd love to have my debts canceled and stuff." But your average American understands that it's absolutely irresponsible to say those kinds of things, to make those claims that if we follow these policies, we're going to be more prosperous. The fact of the matter is, people will suffer if those policies come into play. God forbid. We will suffer as a nation. Human beings will suffer. And who suffers the most? The poor will suffer the most because we're not going to increase the pie of wealth. It's going to decrease. And, you know, I have to say that that to me, that is a moral issue, how how you care for the poor. And if you really think that those policies put forward by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders et al. are are going to help the poor, you're you're more than wrong. But if you really believe it, I can understand why you would vote for them. I I'm convinced that if you care about people other than yourself in America, you have to care about those kinds of policy uh, policies and policy initiatives. And it would be immoral to vote for somebody who is going to do that to the country and who's going to you know, effectively cripple us, uh, you know, not to say the kinds of people that they would uh, put on the Supreme Court who do not value the Constitution. They consider it a living document. And they're going to basically legislate from the bench, which is the definition of unconstitutional. So there's a lot of stuff here. And I think we kind of get down in the weeds uh, of a conversation like, you know, Trump is some nefarious figure. I don't think he is. If I thought he was, uh, I'd be talking about it. But I I think that uh, the whole thing becomes even less transactional when you realize that his kids love him. uh, He loves his family. He, He loves his country. That, to me, is very interesting. I don't think he's faking that. And I think that we have had uh, a recent president who, who who had such a dramatically different view of America that in the end, I think it frightened a lot of people. They said, we, we didn't sign up for this. Uh, so, as I say, it's complicated, but in some ways, it's, it's not that complicated. He is Eric Metaxas, author of If You Can Keep It, The Forgotten Promise of American Liberty, host of the nationally syndicated Eric Metaxas Show. Eric, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Take care. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. 
There's a interesting piece by Aaron Pomerantz, who's a social psychologist and a doctoral candidate at the University of Oklahoma, writing at uh, fee.org, Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, if you want, it's w- worth checking out. This is uh, you know Leonard Reed's uh, group, iPencil. Uh, five psychological forces that turn people into political hacks. There's two I want to pick out in particular before I turn my attention to Nancy Pelosi again. One is groupthink and group polarization. Uh, of course, you know what groupthink is. Uh, when uh, you suspend your individual critical thinking skills and beliefs in favor of whatever the group believes is the best idea. Uh, think about it this way. As Thomas Sowell famously observed, the least intelligent form of life is a committee that was uh, speaking to the phenomenon of groupthink. Closely related to that, group polarization. Groups are something of a gestalt entity, writes Pomerantz, in that they often are greater than the sum of their parts. Being part of a group can intensify our attitudes and beliefs in a phenomenon known as risky shift. The group feeds into itself, and we become more extreme and more polarized. Groupthink and group polarization, one of those five psychological forces that turn people into political hacks. The other that I'm picking up here for a treatment on Madam Speaker when we're told that perhaps mocking uh, that the uh, psychological phenomenon is called reactance, when we're not we're told we can't do a thing and uh, we're resentful of being told we can't do it. So we do precisely what we were warned against double down. So, for example, when uh, we're told that perhaps mocking or attacking children is inappropriate behavior, the immediate response is to simply double down and attack them harder, be it Greta Thunberg or Baron Trump perhaps for different reasons. Uh, the uh, reactance issue uh, uh, is rather than basing our identities on ideas or values, we just instead become pure reactionaries uh, rather than basing our political discourse and decision-making on pure reactance to our opposition. We uh, might want to focus on defending our own beliefs and values in a measured way. Well, sure. That's a way to break the reactance cycle, but uh, group thinking, group polarization and reactance. And uh, this brings us to a a comment that Nancy Pelosi made during her sit down with Clinton Foundation donor zero on this week on Sunday about uh, Iran, her uh, war powers resolution in the House. And the protests on the streets of Iran, on the campuses in Tehran uh, against Soleimani those who were happy to see him taken out and against the mullahs after they admitted this weekend that they had shot down that Ukrainian airliner, allegedly mistakenly, although there are uh, theories out there that in point of fact, the reason that the mullahs continue to let commercial flights fly that night that they struck the positions in Iraq where U.S. forces were staged was to provide a deterrent to any retaliatory strike that night from Americans, from, from, from America. So, in other words, there's commercial flights there. We don't want to risk America, wouldn't want to risk shooting down a commercial plane and killing innocent civilians. So this is a way for them to provide cover to attack us without fear of reprisal on that evening, at least. So, in effect, the argument goes, they were using... Innocent civilians on commercial flights, a plurality of whom on that flight in question were Iranians as human shields. 
Uh huh. So protesting the regime for killing its own people, which they're not averse to do. They murdered 1,500 protesters uh, prior to this to tamp down the discontent that is being exhibited on the streets of Tehran. And here was Nancy Pelosi's reaction. By the way, this is all over Twitter, all over Twitter. Uh, Instant, not only support for Trump's tweet that he stands with the protesters over the weekend, but uh, people uh, with videos of students protesting and what they were saying. And it wasn't death to America uh, on college campuses, on the streets of Tehran. And against that backdrop, Nancy Pelosi said this. We get there. We're seeing now demonstrations in the streets of Iran against the regime. Do you support those protesters? And would it be a good thing if they brought the regime down? Well, the regime, the protesters are are protesting, as I understand it, this brand of protesters about the fact that that plane went down, and many students uh, were on that plane, and these are largely students in the street. I think the Iranians should have not had commercial flights going off when there they're was... They're calling out the regime for lying. They're saying death to Khamenei as well. No, well, whatever it is. But the fact is this. The, the, there were protesters whatever in the streets is. before against the regime. After the taking out of Soleimani, there were protesters in the street joined together, as you know, against us. That wasn't good. Taking down this plane is a terrible, terrible tragedy. And they should be held accountable for letting commercial flights go at a time that was so, so dangerous. Uh, but there are different reasons why uh, people are in the street. Uh, of course. Yeah, there's actually, a, I mean, there's so much there. Uh, there's another psychological force that turns people into political hacks like Nancy Pelosi, it's called heuristic thinking, mental shortcuts, uh, words that don't mean anything There's because there's nothing substantive attached to them. Oh, of course, it's a tragedy. They shot down the civilian airliner and killed 176 people, including a plurality of Iranians. But and they should be held accountable for that. Well, how? No follow up from Stephanopoulos, of course. Well, how? How would you hold them accountable? Wag your finger at them and say it, well, that was a tragedy, not to mention Nancy Pelosi accepting the state run media version of events, which is Iranians coming together to mourn Soleimani and protest America. The standard picture we get from Iran, because, of course, it's orchestrated. These are Potemkinites in Iran. Is this is Nancy Pelosi unaware of this Potemkinites? This is marketing for the regime to the outside world, setting up a a funeral of the revered general where all Iranians mourn and uh, those even with problems with the regime coming together to protest America. That's not what was happening. And for her to to minimize the protests by suggesting, oh, you know, they're protesting a lot of things and different people are different, different uh, protesting different things. Amazingly, amazingly, the Iranian state-run TV anchors, they, they can't abide the lies that Nancy Pelosi can abide. They can't abide them anymore. Two Iranian journalists at a state immediately reported they resigned from their jobs, apologizing for, quote, the 13 years I told you lies uh, one anchor did as uh, to her supporters as Tehran grapples with the fallout from the protest stemming from uh, not only the 
uh, repression of the regime, but the attempted cover up of the downing of that Ukrainian airliner. It's very hard for me to believe our people have been killed. Forgive me that I got to know this late and forgive me for the 13 years I told you lies. No need to ask for Nancy Pelosi's apology there, Iranian state-run TV anchors. Or uh, no need to uh, uh, offer an apology to U.S. Beltway-run anchors, right? This is the Dan Prof. Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, James O'Keefe and the Project Veritas folks have done it again. Uh, this rather explosive video of a uh, comrade Bernie Sanders staffer talking about... Uh, talking to one of O'Keefe's undercover reporter types. Uh, what uh, will happen in this country were Trump to be reelected in November? So if Trump gets reelected, what? Cities burn. Do you even think that some of these, like, Mexican people could even be re-educated? <laughs> I mean, we got to try. I mean, like, so, like, in Nazi Germany, after the fall of the Nazi party, there was a fun of the populace that was Nazified, and like Germany had to spend billions of dollars re-educating people to not be Nazis. Like we're probably gonna have to do the same thing here. And that's kind of what Bernie's like whole like, hey, for education for everybody, is we're gonna have to teach you not to be a Nazi. There's a reason Joseph Stalin had gulags. Right, and actually, gulags were a lot better than like what like the CIA has told us that they were. Like people were actually paid a living wage in gulags. They had conjugal visits in gulags. Gulags were actually meant for like reeducation. The greatest way to break a billionaire of their like privilege and their idea that they're superior. Go out and break rocks for twelve hours a day. You're now a working class person, and you're gonna <laughs> learn what that means. Right? Bernie doesn't get the nomination. Bernie goes to the second round in like the DNC convention. For uh, more on this uh, review of Bernie's big plans, like of the five-year variety, we're pleased to be joined by Matthew Continenti. He's the editor of the Washington Free Beacon. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Uh, unfortunately, Burlington University is not going to be one of those uh, re-education uh, camp sites because uh, Jane Sanders run it into the ground. But, but otherwise, uh, extolling the benefits of Gulag's uh, Camp Bernie. That was uh, pretty amazing to hear. <laughs> I, um, I think that uh, activist needs some education of his own. He can start by reading Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, yes, for, for mm. a little bit about what the Gulag really was like. It's I don't. I don't terrifying re- to hear that. I don't remember in Gulag Archipelago uh, any talk of conjugal visits or a living wage. <laughs> I, I, maybe I, maybe I skipped over that chapter. Starvation and and shivering, you know, sub-zero temperatures. I mean, I, I, listening to that video, I couldn't help but think of the uh, rapturous applause President Trump received when he entered the Superdome at the college national championship ball game the other night and thinking, 
try re-educating that crowd. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think you're, a lot of people are going to willingly um, subject themselves to uh, lessons from from these types of uh, socialist uh, well, Jacobins. Well, also, yeah, uh, the the Jacobins, but, but also too. Uh, I mean, it's just remarkable. Uh, it's not just Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden too. They have learned nothing from 2016 and nothing from the past three years. Joe Biden telling coal miners, hey, uh, you can go 3,000 feet below ground. You can learn how to code. Your jobs are going away. Just deal with it. Uh, And uh, this kid, the staffer for Comrade Bernie, uh, you know, just like the people who supported the Nazis needed to be reeducated, people who voted for Trump need to be reeducated, too. That's not exactly saying uh, we respectfully disagree, but we want to give you a better option in 2020. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Democratic Party has not uh, actually um, assimilated the lessons of the fallout from Hillary's deplorable comment in September 2016, which I think really drove a lot of people to embrace Donald Trump. But, you know, Bernie hasn't learned anything since 1989. He hasn't hasn't learned anything since the fall of the Berlin Wall. You know, this is a man who honeymooned in the Soviet Union and who uh, apparently was critical of JFK for being too hostile to the Cuban Revolution. So um, Bernie hasn't learned a lot for a long time. And uh, yet uh, he is... uh right there in both Iowa and New Hampshire and uh, is being talked about as having the momentum at present. He is. He's uh, he's riding high. Um, he's in part of a tie in Iowa and part of a close race uh, in New Hampshire. And look, you know, uh, the Democratic Party narrowly escaped having Bernie um, land a one-two punch in 2016. Uh, it was a very close loss to Hillary Clinton in Iowa. And then, of course, he ran the table in New Hampshire just a week later. There is a scenario in which Bernie wins not only Iowa and New Hampshire, but also Nevada, the third contest, a caucus there, where he's actually been relatively strong. That, I think, would send the fear of God into, the, into many, many Democrats who understand, I believe, that Bernie um, would not pose a threat, rather would, would not have uh, as strong a chance against President Trump as they believe Joe Biden does. Uh, I want to pick up a discussion on the 2020 and the Democrat primary, as well as get to your piece on impeachment, now that we know Pelosi is going to move or a resolution appointing managers and uh, transmit those articles of impeachment over to the Senate tomorrow. We're talking to Matthew Connetti, editor of the Washington Free Beacon. We'll be right back on the Dan Prof Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Matthew Continenti, editor of the Washington Free Beacon. We're talking about uh, the 2020 Democrat primary with uh, the Iowa caucus just a few weeks away. Uh, And we were talking about uh, Sanders and Biden. Is it in your estimation with uh, perhaps uh, a billionaire or two being a couple of wild cards that this is down to? Biden and Bernie and Obama world is going to have to swallow hard and go with Joe? Well, you never know. And uh, Iowa is very hard to poll and um, the race is very close there. So I'm not leaving out the possibility that we have an upset in Iowa and that Elizabeth Warren has a comeback or Mayor Pete shocks the world by winning Iowa, even though he seems to have lost quite a bit of ground 
in recent weeks. That said, I believe the 2020 race on the D side is shaping up to be very similar to the 2016 race mm. on the D side, and that is an establishment candidate, Hillary Clinton then, Joe Biden now, against the uh, left-wing elements of that party uh, as personified in Bernie Sanders, who is the, <laughs> the common thread that runs through both elections. And and you have uh, the same problem for Democrats in 2020 that you had in 2016, maybe even more pronounced now that Trump has a record that uh, on a number of scores is pretty good. But the, the, the problem strictly on the left, which is Joe Biden doesn't bring an excited base to the table. And these are base plus elections. So you can get the same percentage of the black vote, for example, that uh, Barack Obama did, as Hillary effectively did in 2016. But there are a lot fewer black voters, and that means you're losing some of these swing states and you can't make the math work. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, I think that'd be Biden's problem. Um, He would have to generate a lot of enthusiasm, which he hasn't been able to do in the primary. So it seems that it would be pretty hard to do in the general. Bernie's problem is somewhat different. His problem is if he were to obtain the nomination, um, you know, large portions of the Democratic Party would just be scared of him and um, and might just sit out. And some might even decide to back Trump. I mean, at least Trump, they know we've had four years. We've had three years of him. Now we're going on our fourth. Um, either way, though, it's a recipe for a very divided party and perhaps even more divided than it was in 2016. Because I think the Bernie people really feel that now is their time. You know, they have AOC on their side. They have uh, support among young people, young Democrats. And if they're denied the nomination again, I think that protests at the Democratic Convention could be even more disruptive than they were in 2016. Yeah, I want to I want to go to something you said about, uh, well, number one, they're, they're ti- it better be their time. I mean, the guy's 77 years old. <laughs> China, right. uh, how many bites at the apple do you get? But um, yeah, the the uh, the idea that um, uh, that the Democrats have to um, uh, you know, make the case more so on the merits and not just the fear mongering, because so much of their fear mongering about Trump, uh, you know, finger on the button and all this sort of thing in 2016. Well, now there's a record and uh, what you predicted he would be. He he hasn't been in so many respects, at least with respect to to uh, endangering lives or doing wildly reckless things beyond tweeting. It just hasn't happened. And so you got to come up with more than that. Yeah, I don't think Democrats have really had an answer on the economy um, throughout this primary campaign. And if the economy remains uh, in the place where it is now, uh, Trump has a really strong advantage heading into this election. Similarly, I think Democrats completely um, muffed their response to the killing of General Soleimani. Um, they came across as not uh, so much interested in American national security as worried that their beloved Iran deal was going to go the way of the dodo. Um, so um, those are the two most important things in any election, right? You know, the economy and national security. And the Democrats have to up their game on both, I think, if if they have a shot at defeating Trump. And, and in order to up their game on either, they need to get past this impeachment matter, which uh, apparently Nancy Pelosi seems finally resigned to do. Um, you uh, wrote a piece the Free Beacon, freebeacon.com, about how Mitch McConnell has outplayed Pelosi. I mean, all McConnell had to do was sort of just stand there and he outplayed Pelosi, didn't he? 
<laughs> right. Well, I think he also had to keep his caucus unified. That will be his hardest task throughout this entire impeachment process. But he, he crossed the first hurdle. You know, Schumer was trying to use Pelosi's holding the back of the articles to force McConnell to uh, vote to call witnesses at the outset of the trial, which is something he did not want to do. But McConnell was able to keep the GOP conference unified by pointing to the precedent of Bill Clinton's impeachment trial in 1999. And that seems to have satisfied uh, the entirety of the caucus. That's why no Republican broke for McConnell and why ultimately Pelosi will be sending over these these articles. But, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm withholding judgment about whether she's going to send them over until she actually does. Yeah, and I think that's uh, fair to be somewhat skeptical. But but what about uh, McConnell's uh, command control over his caucus as it pertains to issues like witnesses? You know, uh, there's a lot of posturing going on. Everybody wants to be seen as fair and reasonable. But ultimately, right. the real play whether it's your President Trump or whether you're Mitt Romney, is vote your shares and move on to things that people actually care about. You can't even get the American people interested in this, much less is uh, is sort of the the oscillating uh, public opinion, a couple points here, a couple points there, particularly relevant. Look, you need four votes, uh, four Republican votes, to join with the entirety of the Democrats to force um, witnesses. Uh, they might have three. They might have Collins, Murkowski, and Romney, but they need a fourth. And, you know, there's all these rumors in Washington that they might might be Lamar Alexander or might be someone else, but I haven't seen it yet. And until I do, I'll remain skeptical that witnesses will be called. Um, but, of course, even if witnesses are called, it's ridiculous to think that only the Democrats would determine who those right. witnesses will be. Right. Right. <laughs> so, right. so I wonder whether... Schumer is really thinking this through, you know, I mean, does he really want Hunter Biden to be subpoenaed by the United States Senate um, for this trial? I I would assume not. Um, So how this plays out is a real unknown. But we do know that McConnell has been very successful in the past at keeping the GOP senators together, um, most recently, of course, with the Kavanaugh nomination. And uh, I, I have a pretty good sense that he'll be able to do it this time as well. He is Matthew Continetti, editor of the Washington Free Beacon. That's freebeacon.com. Matthew, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, a new study out from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. 34% of Americans say they sleep more in the winter compared with 10% who claim they sleep less during this time of year. Yeah, well, if you're in a cold weather state like I am in Illinois, there is a a sense of wanting to hibernate, right? Because you don't go outdoors as much because you can't enjoy the outdoors as much. So you're more inclined to uh, get under the covers. Uh, And they give a bunch of, uh, of course, tips for proper sleep and getting enough sleep so you're sharp because uh, getting uh, not enough sleep like I do, which is not get enough sleep, bad for your health long term. So you want to 
do things like avoid screens and electronics before bed and, you know, get your, I don't know, six, seven hours of sleep, so on and so forth. Let me tell you about one woman who um, hasn't got much sleep over the last 50 years. Linda Herring. She always wanted a big family. She never imagined she would foster more than 600 children. 600 children. Over the course of the last 50 years, she lives in Johnson County, Iowa. Five decades of fostering children. Uh, Herring ran a home daycare for local families, worked night as a night custodian at a nearby high school. If that wasn't enough, she also volunteered as a first responder for nearly those same 50 years. She never turned away a child, no matter their age, gender, or special needs. She would regularly travel to pick up foster children who needed a home. I mean, this is a saint. By the way, not just a foster mom. Linda Herring also was the mom to eight children, three of whom were foster children she adopted. One of those, 39 years old now, Anthony Herring, said, uh, I appreciate being adopted even more as a parent than I did when I was a child. I'm forever grateful for the life I was given. She and Dad have both taught me that family isn't determined by blood. It's who you have in your life to love. I was adopted, too, by the way, as an aside, So when I was three days old. And so, of course, I'm uh, very uh, sympathetic to this story, uh, you know, the loving uh, the loving decision a birth mother makes to give up a child for adoption that she doesn't believe she can care for. And then, of course, the loving choice that a family makes to bring a child into their home the way, well, not the way Linda Herring did, because <laughs> not too many people on this planet that could uh, count fostering 600 children. And again, I mean, just the um, otherworldliness of this woman. Two of her foster children had severe medical and special needs. One of them, Danny, is fully dependent on others for care. While Danny wasn't expected to live long after her birth, she's now 29 years old. Herring passed on what she likes to call her foster care trait. Four of her biological children have foster children, and three of them have followed their parents' footsteps and adopted kids of their own. Recently, she was honored in Johnson County, Iowa, for, well, for everything I just described. What an incredible woman and an incredible family that, and an incredible love that radiates throughout through all of those 600 children she fostered. Uh, just a, an incredible story. So, you know, occasionally... Let's leave the Dan Prof Show on a happy note, uh, reminding everyone there are great people out there doing wonderful, loving things like Linda Herring in Johnson County, Iowa. Thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.